Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. I'd like to introduce to the Backseat Driver radio show, Peter Stevens, who's described in various books and uh, periodicals as a British car designer. He's designed the Jaguar XJR15, the Lotus Elan M100, the McLaren F1, the Lotus Esprit redesign, the Subaru 555 WRC Impreza, uh, the MG ZRZS ZT and TF, the MGX Power SV, the Rover 75, 45 and 25, uh, the Rover Streetwise and the Rover 75 Tourer, to name but a few. <laughs> Peter Stevens, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. I mean, the one question has to be asked. How did all this come about? Oh, oh, right, Say again. How did all this come about? How did, how did Peter Stevens become one of the world's greatest car designers? Well, it was, it was, just, it was a strange old story, actually, because my father was actually, he was an artist and a, a painter, and he taught art at uh, St Martin's School of Art, amongst other things. At the same time, my mother, her brother was a fellow called Dennis Jenkinson, who was not only motoring correspondent for years and years at motorsport, but he rode as passenger with Sterling Moss in the 55 Millia, which they won. He was world champion sidecar passenger twice, both for a fellow called Eric Oliver and a, 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 a Belgian fellow called Raymond Massui. So I, I, I mean, it's easy for me to think now and say, well, those two influences, you know, kind of art and racing, it was pretty obvious I was going to do something, you know, to do with car design. Uh, but that's probably the benefit of hindsight, really. But on the other hand, both of them encouraged me absolutely to ask them any questions about what they did and not not show me how to become a designer or show me how to become a painter but um, we'll show you the tools and you, you know, make what you will of them. Yeah. Now, I mean, when you, when you look at uh, just a small version of your CV, um, you were a tutor of vehicle design at the Rollid College of Art, five years as chief designer at Lotus, um, then you went on to Jaguars and McLaren. I mean, one question has to be asked. What... Where do you start when you design a car? I mean, I conclude, maybe naively, you will have a blank piece of paper and a, a nice sharp pencil in your hand. Where do you start? This is absolutely true. Um, in fact, I mean, when you stare at a blank sheet of paper, and it's not a little sheet of paper, you know, it's, it's, it's often quite a big sheet of paper, <laughs> and you're, you're sitting there with your pencil, you know, and if you do that then you just kind of freeze up, I think, really. I mean, what I've always wanted to do 
um, is to understand, if you like, the culture of the client. Because when I say what a designer really does, he puts into three-dimensional object the culture of the company that's asked him to do something for them. So learning about the company, not looking at their old cars, but looking at what they have achieved or try to achieve, gives you a beginning as an introduction into what kind of vehicle it was that they might like. Yeah. I'll give you a little example that um, I, I went, well, I tried, I went for a year and a half and tried to design cars for Lamborghini. And in Italy, that wasn't really a very popular thing to do. <laughs> I did that because Michael Kimberley, who had been um, MD of Lotus, was invited to go to Lamborghini and sort things out in about 93, 94. Um, and people said to me, well, you're Italian journalist, you're English, what on earth can you come down here and think you can tell Lamborghini, you know? Yeah. Now, the interesting bit was the kind of people who had been designing for Lamborghini were actually taking a, a design that they would trail around all the companies, if you like, you know. And um, Somebody will buy this one day. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they weren't. They certainly were, you know, weren't understanding the company. And that was, that was quite fun because, you know, Lamborghini is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. I mean, it, it, it still is. Either people love them or hate them, you know, and... So it wants to be a bit controversial. But also, they had an absolute passion for fast cars and motorsport, you know, and all of the rest of it. So I didn't put a pen to paper there until I really understood much more about the company, you know, and drove them and found they were scary old things as well. <laughs> so you kind of start by, by trying to understand what the, you know, what the company is. But then what the project is, because there's a tendency to think, for, you know, for example, if you if you went to Ford or Renault, you think, oh, well, I'm just going to be working on the new Fiesta or something, yeah. you know, and just updating that. And that's really no good. I think you, you have to try and think, think afresh, you know. And I conclude as well that you will, you will work to an initial brief. I mean, if I came along and said... Uh, right, I'm uh, representing, for example, Ferrari. But instead of the usual Ferrari, I want a family car. And I conclude that's when you... I conclude some of, some of the designs are not what you're expecting them to be because the way things are at the moment, a lot of the manufacturers are now switching into these, what I call, ersatz 4, 4x4 SUVs. And all of a sudden, they try and incorporate a two-seater high-performance supercar into a big, bulky four-door SUV. Well, it's, uh, I mean, there are, and there are times when I have actually said to people, no, I think that's the wrong thing to do. And it, it's taking a, a risk because they might say, well, we'll go and find somebody um, who thinks it is the right thing to do, you know, because with some it can be such a fundamentally wrong thing to do. You know? Yeah, I mean, we we hear you know that Maserati. Well, they they now make a, a kind of four by four SUV, the Levante, you know? and, um, and then when you look at how many they actually sell, you know, <laughs> you think it might not be. The, uh, uh, I mean, you can make lots of profit on SUVs, but it's yeah. Sometimes you do have to tell people. I think that no, but you can only do that if you have an alternative suggestion. Yeah. You know? You can't go to Lamborghini and say, no, you don't want to do that. 
so I'm going home. You say, but have you thought about this? Yeah. yeah. Which is, I mean, that was just, I did a concept um, study for Volvo like hundred years ago, it feels now. And they said, what do you think, you know, we should do with the estate cars? Because the estate car, you know, a Volvo estate is about as sensible a thing as you could buy. Yeah. You know? I, I seem to remember when some movie, somebody said, Volvo, I am. Boxy, but safe. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was kind of <laughs> But, I mean, what was clear was that there was, there was nothing kind of adventurous or, you know, exciting about Volvos. And I actually suggested what became, I think it's called VX70 or something. So it's a, a it is a four-wheel driven estate car and it sits a bit higher off the ground. Yeah. And it looks like your life is more interesting then it's a second-hand car because you're an antique dealer. <laughs> I think that was the problem. The poor old Volvo Estate. If you if you drove one, you were immediately labelled an antiques dealer, weren't you? You, you were, and, and there are a couple around here in, in rural Suffolk who still have their old Volvo Estates, and they're fine for that. But, it, but the, it, it's interesting because if you have the the raised-up one, and I did that business where you put like the additional wheel arches and they're sort of grey and they look you know, like they're meant for the business then some of these oh or they would have thought two years ago oh he must be off to Switzerland you know to yeah. go mountain climbing or something so the, you know that was my proposal to them so that was how I sort of understood the project and not long ago I found the first little sketches I photographed the sketches and anyway, the fact it I thought, oh good lord I've forgotten that <laughs> Now, I mean, all car designs start as a prototype. Um, and, I mean, it, what it, one of the famous cars you're known for designing is the McLaren F1. Now, until until McLaren decided to go into road cars, McLaren had never built road cars. How do you sit down with somebody like McLaren, or how do McLaren sit down with you and say, right, we're going to build a car we've never built before? I mean, where, where, where on earth do you start with somebody like McLaren? Well, it, it is, it's particularly interesting that because the, the, the team of guys who got together actually all came from road car companies. Yeah. You know, um, there was one or two from Jaguar and I think probably three of us from, from Lotus. And so we understood the road car, you know, as, and how different it is from a, from a race car. I mean, only just, a little historical thing that of course McLaren did build a road Bruce McLaren built a road car the M6 GT yeah and of all extraordinary coincidences was that I had gone down to one of the Brands Hatch BOAC 500 mile races um, and I my uncle was down there and he had the very McLaren F1 GT that Bruce had built as a road car and um, I rode back to London with him in it. So yeah. that was my kind of first McLaren road car experience. And it was just a race car for the road. It was glorious, but not what McLaren would be intending. Yeah. But we had to, yeah, uh, not just me, but the, the other little tiny team, we had to suggest simple things. For example, the body surface finish on a road car, even on the cheapest road car, is better than at that period 
what a Formula One car's like, and the panel gaps are better, you know, and the the kickback through the steering doesn't. And so there were all those, and each person in their area, you know, whether it was the guy looking after the door hinging and stuff, or yeah. my mate Steve Randall looking after the suspension, said, you've got to forget all your race car stuff, you know. We like the idea that it's got to be really lightweight, that's for sure, and, you know, we'd all like things to be lightweight. But it was, so it was, it was to a degree, a kind of educational program, yeah. you know. And the fact that um, I insisted that we should do the, the model in uh, clay, uh, car modeling clay, which is quite different from the kind of clay you might make pots of. It's actually a mixture of um, dry clay particles with lanolin and certain amounts of oil and sulfur and things. And it's the opposite of clay. You put it in the oven and it gets soft instead of... <laughs> so it's a, but we call it clay because that's, you know, what we do, really. And um, that was quite a mystery, you know, to them. And particularly Rondez, he didn't like the smell of it, you know, which is reasonable. We all thought that smell means work, you know. Yeah. That, that smell means creativity and all the rest of it. So I did. I loved it because I like modeling in the clay stuff myself too so even that was a kind of you know voyage of discovery and and education yeah and i mean the the first one had uh, a, the, the driver's position was central was it not i mean who conceived that idea well that was that was was gordon murray and at first i think that when he discussed that with with ron dennis and ron had an idea that it could actually be a single seater, but a kind of single seater for the road. Yeah, you know. But um, everybody said, "Yeah, but the whole point of these is you can show your mates, you know, how great the thing is, you know, and possibly what a good driver you imagine you are." Um, <laughs> but because I mean, the central seat was a, was a very interesting concept, and that did come from from Gordon. And um, what came out of that is one of the other guys who came from Lotus was a packaging engineer. That's the person who arranges all the bits inside the car so they don't, you know, bump into each other and the people can sit comfortably. Yeah. And he was involved with laying out the seats where the passengers sat slightly back from the driver. Yeah. Which meant the car didn't need to be so wide. And um, so really our first few months, and I very deliberately didn't sketch anything for the first few months. I was just bursting to draw something, you know. Yeah. But I knew that until we laid out where the people were and where the wheels would be because of the length of the engine and what gearbox we would use and all those kinds of things, you know, I, I would kind of disappoint myself and confuse the, you know, the management there that was drawing something when we didn't know what the car was going to be. <laughs> yeah. But then also, I mean, it was, it was, it was considerable discipline on my part in a way. I was very keen to go to the wind tunnel because this was plainly going to be fast. Yeah. And I went to the wind tunnel with a model with different front and rear bits on it so that I could see what um, the effect would be if we had to have a longer wheelbase or a shorter wheelbase or a bigger cockpit on the aero because that was going to be crucial. Yeah. And so to a degree... The finished design didn't come out of that, but certainly the basic proportion came from the work I'd done in the wind tunnel, you know, which is quite nice. I like that because I knew this was going to be a probably serious car. Yeah. 
and that we had to treat it, you know, equally seriously. Now, when you're inviting somebody to buy, you know, a car that you've been part of the design team of, and it can do 240 miles an hour, you, I feel you have a real moral responsibility to look after those owners, you yeah. know? Because they're not all going to be race drivers, for sure, you know? And you have to give them the safest possible place to enjoy themselves in. Yeah. Now, when the car was designed as a road car, did you did you know or did, it, did you have it in your mind that... Uh, it would also eventually become a racing car. Well, I mean, personally, I did actually, um, because I was had, well, went on being involved in in racing. I'd worked with a good friend of mine, Richard Lloyd, on his Group C Porsches in that glorious period of nine five six and nine six two Porsches, and a bit with TWR with the Le Mans Jaguars and all of this kind of stuff, and. I did a lot of work on, particularly Formula One, but race car graphic schemes and liveries, you know, yeah. because I just like the racing, I have to admit. So I couldn't imagine that the F1 wouldn't become a race car. I mean, if you said within the company, that was never the intention, Yeah, you know. But because um, certainly I tested some bits and pieces at the wind tunnel early on, and I actually did some sketches of, uh, of an F1 with the, the kind of wing and colour scheme and low ride height and all that, just because I like, you know, drawing the stuff. But I didn't share those um, with with Ron or anybody yeah. at, at the senior level. But I, yeah, I mean, it was pretty obvious it was going to be pretty good, yeah. Because, I mean, ultimately it is, as Enzo Ferrari always discovered, it's the ultimate way of selling your rogue cars is to uh, stick them on a circuit and go and win things. So, I mean, the McLaren F1 did, exa- in many ways, followed Enzo Ferrari's uh, edict of, uh, what is it, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, even though the McLarens are a tad expensive. Well, this is true, and even Henry Ford thought that, you know, which is why he was interested in racing way back, you know. And, I mean, the other thing is, when you've designed any car, you, you have the prototypes. Um, I mean... I conclude it must, shall we say, um, make you feel a little bit, uh, a little bit miserable, shall we say, when somebody comes along, the production team come along and say, "Oh, well, you can't do that, and you can't do that, and we certainly can't have that." How involved are you in turning your initial design and the prototype, the, the model, etc., into the finished production car? In, in projects like the well. It, it was the same at Lotus and absolutely at McLaren and uh, with Tom Walkinshaw and the uh, XGR15. I was involved, you know, right up until the car got given to the customer. Yeah. Because, yeah, when I, I worked with, um, well, when I worked with Ford Motor Company, which was the first company I, I started working at as a designer, I was just mystified and kind of appalled that when the first, and they would be, only quarter scale clay models of the car you know were beginning to take shape the car was taken away by the engineering and aerodynamic team to the wind tunnel who then changed it and came back and said no it's got to be like this you know yeah and to my mystification when i worked with mg rover uh, at the end of the uh, the last century that's a long time ago <laughs> um, the same thing 
everything happened there. And because I, when I was at college, I actually did a couple of aero projects together with people at um, Imperial College. I said, no, 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 I go along and, you know, I work on that, you know. It doesn't get taken away and done. And then you're told that's what it should be. Because you, if you have an understanding of how the aero work, or even how the wheels go up and down at the front yeah. whilst they're steering and all the rest of it, you know, and so that your clearances for the wheel arches don't have to be great yawning gaps like on a truck, you know. Yeah. Then I, I absolutely saw it as my job to be involved in that. Yeah. I remember once somebody saying to me on a project, yes, but if the front wheel is on full lock and on full bump, it'll touch the wheel arch. Yeah. And I said, if you're on full lock and full bump, you're having an accident. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot more than the wheel's going to touch the wheel arch. <laughs> to conclude, <coughs> concluded that discussion quite successfully, actually. <laughs> so do you, are, are you still involved when they say, well, we can't do this, we can't do that, we have to alter this, we have to alter that? Do they, I know you said some some of the teams will go and do it. Do you have a say in what they then do to the into the alterations they make? Or do they show you what they now need it to be and you go away and redesign that bit for them? Not really, because, I mean, I suppose if, if somebody came to me with that story about the full bump and full lock, I would require them to show me exactly what that meant, you know. And if, if a piece of the tyre hit the inside of the wheel, like some bit inside there, which, you know, couldn't be moved for technical reasons, then fine, you could... But you don't say, yes, all right, I'll ruin it. You, you know, you'll say, yeah, all right, and I'll... Um, yeah, we'll make at least as good, you know, at least as, as good a proposal as, as the first one. Yeah. But the more, the more you work as a team, you know, I mean, when I was at MG Rover... There was a bit of an attitude that the people down the corridor were the enemy, actually. Yeah. And, and I said, no, no, the enemy is in Stuttgart and Turin, yeah. you know, and, and, and Paris. It's, it's not down the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> now, one car you designed, um, and it's... I interviewed a, a Lotus man a few weeks ago, is the Lotus Elan M100, which was the which was the front-wheel drive version, and everybody knows it had a, an association with Kia because at one point in time you could actually buy it as a Kia. I mean... Oh, well, it, it ended up with Kia, which was... yeah, I was, I was miles away at, at the time, <laughs> honest. No, I, I started with a Kia. We, I mean, we started out because the way that worked is that um, Lotus, as, as ever back in the past, you know, was having financial troubles. And so, to a degree, it was always a bit for sale. And General Motors bought Lotus, you know? Yeah. Which was kind of bizarre when you think, I can't imagine, I can't think of a number, but General Motors is like 10,000 times the size and everything else of Lotus, or maybe 100,000. I mean, just a giant, and we were little minnow. But one of the things they said is, well, you will have absolute free access to any powertrain yeah. within the entire GM world, and that included Isuzu in Japan, yeah. who was not... And in comparative terms, they were quite a small company, but they were really nice people, they were really enthusiastic, and they had a, a super engine, actually. I mean, we had to look with Toyota, but that didn't suit 
people were doing a lot of development work for other companies and they were looking at making front wheel drive the geometry such that if you floored the throttle on a damp road it didn't wriggle all over the road yeah um, we had a, a brilliant fellow called john miles who understood the whole dynamics of, of front wheel drive and it was seen as a good opportunity to demonstrate the company's skills in front wheel drive by doing the front wheel drive sports car you know which people would have thrown their hands in the air so when you combine that with this very nice little light small isuzu engine which would would fit under the bonnet easily and it didn't compromise the bonnet so it you know looked like a rhinoceros or something so we um yeah it it and in fact what was nice is that the people at isuzu saw themselves also as not exactly minnows but certainly very small fish in the whole you know world of car production yeah from a pot of tea to TT motorbikes. From a classic English breakfast to a full serving of classic cars. Bridge House Tea Rooms is the Northwest premier classic car meeting location for cars, bikes, tractors and owners clubs. So no matter what your automotive appetite might be, Visit Bridge House Farm Tea Rooms on their Facebook page or call John and Alicia on 07980-444-221 for show details and to reserve your own table and parking space. So we had a, a really a similar philosophy, you know, and they were happy to change things and, you know, improve the engine in other ways, which was, was a knockout, actually, and that was... Uh, it, I mean, that was a funny time for Lotus because I think there was one particular couple of guys at GM who liked the idea of them taking over Lotus, you know. And then the next generation of them probably thought, what on earth have we got here? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't fit with any of our, our corporate objectives, you know, um, which is where it became for sale. And the poor land, in a way, was a slight victim of that, um, you know, that business with the company becoming for sale and being bought by other folk who then decided to stop making the land and to sell the whole land project tooling and everything to to kia yeah who, who didn't really understand the, the subtlety of a lot of the suspension you know and they put cheap parts in and yeah from what i hear it wasn't terribly nice I mean, when you look at it, I mean, it is start. I get the feeling that the uh, that the Elan M100 st- still today is a Marmite car. Either you will love it or hate it, and the Lotus the Lotus fans don't know what to make of it at times. But when you when you are recreating an iconic little sports car like that, once again, where where do you start with it all? Well, it, it is it is quite tricky that actually, because what was happening at Lotus was that. They, they had worked for a long time with um, Giugiaro and Ital Design. Yeah. And at that period, Italian Design was what was being termed folded cardboard, very sharp-edged yeah. kind of cars, you know. Uh, one of them being the Lotus Esprit, which Giugiaro had done quite a few years before I got there. And Lotus wanted that I should make... There was then a thing called the Lotus Etna, which was also done by Chujaro, and it was a kind of big esprit, still hard edge, 
you know, like sheets of cardboard, you know, yeah. bent around. Um, and I was asked to make the new small car, which became Elan, uh, to look like a little Etna. Yeah. Um, which I, and they thought, well, the way to get, achieve that is to send me down to Italy to a company called Checomp and do it at Checomp, who had done the model making on the Etna, you see. Yeah. Um, and of course, it didn't work at all because when you try and reduce the, all the dimensions, you know, but you've got a front wheel drive package and it, it was it was just not a nice thing actually it was, and I was really disappointed with it we made the model brought it back to Lotus you know and um, everybody said mm, it's not very exciting I said well no because actually yet there isn't and that's <laughs> old school you know? it's old school that is yeah and part of that came funny it, it sounds really strange part of it came from the materials that people were using to sketch cars yeah and those were some things called magic markers you know oh yeah and you got a box of magic markers and you had cool gray one two three four five six seven eight nine yeah and it's like if you took cool gray three four and five and you just did lines across a bit of paper that was a volkswagen golf you drew the outline <laughs> because of the faceted three shapes you know and if you did three, five, and seven, so a stronger change, then you got a Volkswagen Sirocco. Yeah. You know? And people were using that, and it produced, you know, a, the, the effect of these flat panels. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I thought, well, I, somehow I need to escape from this, you know. I'm actually using pastel, um, with those, and you used to scrape them with a little, um, little scalpel and make this kind of dust and then wipe it across the, paper and you could get soft shapes you know and then a little bit of carefully applied um color pencils you know yeah and you got much softer shapes by changing your drawing style completely you know and i thought that um that was much more interesting you know way of working yeah actually and you could get more you know more sexy shapes really you know by doing that so i my drawing style Influence, curious enough, it influenced the way that the Elan looked. Yeah. But also, I had a super clay modeling guy who went with me eventually to McLaren as well. And it, we could read each other's minds, you know. It was yeah. a strange thing because I would do some of the modeling, but um, roughly, and then he'd do it properly, if you might say. And he'd come and look over my shoulder, you know, and he'd look at the model over my shoulder where I was looking, and he'd go up and he'd touch it, and he'd say, he'd say, it's here, isn't it? The line's just not good here, you know. <laughs> we did. And it, which was just amazing, you know. And often we wouldn't even need to say that. He'd go and touch it, you know, and I'd just nod and say, yeah. Yeah. And, and that close relationship, you know, gave us this much more, because the tools we used were really were our eyes, and if you like, sounds a bit pretentious but the sort of sensitivity yeah you know? and he said oh you have to imagine you're touching a woman you know and he <laughs> kind of waved his hand like this and he said oh you have to use the left hand because the right hand you use for chopping wood so it's not as sensitive you know but it was cool actually and I you know I thoroughly enjoyed it he was he was a fellow called Gordon Shrigley and he died just a few years ago yeah you know sadly but yeah he did lots of projects and he came and looked after modeling at the the F1. Now, now, just out of interest, like you were saying, like the, the folded cardboard design, shapes are 
shall we say, in fashion. If you look at Volkswagen, and of course it echoes and cascades down into Skoda, Seat, and the other brands that they own, they are becoming sharp-edged again. What dictates the fashion of cars? Or if, if if the current style is the sharp edge, why would Peter Stevens suddenly say, right, we've had enough of sharp edges, we're going to go curvaceous? How do you go about convincing the manufacturers that their next car will be visually radically different to the current trend? Well, it's 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 a tricky one, that because there is no doubt that CAD or computer aided design, you know, computer design, yeah, um, has its own limitations. Funnily enough, and there are there are drawing platforms that they call them drawing methods which you do on the CAD where it decides actually what the shape of the line is. You do three points on the screen, it draws a line through them. Now, that line is called the Bezier curve. Yeah. And the Bezier um, equation was written by a a French fellow at Renault who, I don't know if anyone will remember the Renault 11, but... um, Oh, yeah. Kind of could have been drawn with a ruler, really. And... The Bezier, because he wasn't particularly good at drawing, he did this Bezier thing so he could do kind of curves and stuff. So every line on every car that's done on CAD is derived from a Bezier curve. Right. Which is why you say, well, they kind of look the same, you know. And even now, when you do a clay model, often that's translated then into CAD, and the lines are what unfortunately described as cleaned up, which means they're bezier up, really. <laughs> you know, but also, the other thing that happens is that because of that drawing technique, the shape of the car on the screen is more about those lines than, you know, than a beautiful transition of a curve from one surface to another. Yeah. What your listeners can't see is that I'm, I'm moving my hand about in the air. <laughs> In a kind of soft way, like I'm touching the top of the cloud. Yeah. You know? So, and I think you're looking for those. I mean, you might want to put crisp and up bits on that surface, but it isn't a question. I mean, the computer will join up a bunch of dots as a line. Yeah. You, it's kind of lazy because you, you tell it where you want the dots and it does the line, whether they're a good idea or not, you know. <laughs> So in many ways, this explains why, and I was having this debate the other day with a friend of mine who sells cars for a living, why a lot of modern cars all invariably end up looking alike. I know there's the various, I mean, America has, you can only have certain things, bumper heights and all the rest of it, but this possibly explains why a lot of modern cars all look remarkably alike. Well, there is, but I think also there is a fear that if you do something very different, I mean, the the hundreds of millions that people put into a project, you know, I mean, Mercedes in an S-Class is, is probably 2 billion euros at least. Yeah. So there's a lot of money at risk, you know, and because of the way it works, when a new car is being discussed, the sales and marketing people will come along and say, well, that car's doing quite well, so we want to aim at that, yeah. you know. Which I suppose is why such like as the Volkswagen Golf is emulated so many times over. It's a, a phenomenal selling car, so let's come up with something that looks like it. Yeah, because at least you think, 
you know, you won't be totally wrong. I yeah. Mean, you know, Kia do some decent looking things, but, you know, they are very Volkswagen Golf-like in their competence, but also their proportion and balance and all yeah. these things, you know. But they're not a big step away. There is a bit of a desperation here and there, and I do see it with quite a few German companies. We've got to escape from this, and so you do things that look like they would eat your dog. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're so angry, or they certainly shout at your children. You know? I mean, These some... Angry-looking cars, <clears throat> which, to me, I mean, they're a complete mystery. Yeah. I mean, somebody's just described the uh, new grill or the new, because of course, because they're electric, they don't really have a, a radiator. But the new frontal aspect of uh, the big large BMW looks remarkably like Bugs Bunny, and you look at it and you think, well, yeah, you're actually quite right. It does look like an oversized rabbit. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, it, it's, um, to, I have to say that is a mystery to me, and I, I do see it to a degree as a desperation. Oh, let's try and be different, you know. Oh, we've got to try and persuade the customers. You know that we should have this thing because it's different, yeah. not because it's it, not because it's better at all. You know, and that's. I mean, I I, I find it that quite troubling, troubling, and I you know I like to be quite grumpy about it on my Facebook or Instagram pages. <laughs> get, you know, um, because it's. I mean, it, to, to go way back, I um, I did the designing for ERS trucks many many years ago one of the earliest when i was freelance the earliest uh companies and it was a super company and we had these peter foden who was the boss and owner of, of erf you know and he knew that when trucks went into towns to deliver you know they shouldn't look like they are going to frighten your children or yeah. wash the dog or something like that and he believed that things should look you know in a way friendly you know, because there was even then there was a tendency for trucks to look like um, you know some some monster. Yeah. You know? And and he was very keen that they should have a friendly face, so people would say, "Oh, good, look, oh, the, the bread's arriving," you know. Yeah. But not. Oh, no, no, I don't want to go near that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and he was, and I, I believe very sincerely when he said that, you know, which is I, I haven't that the things I do I mean there's an aggression in a, a Le Mans car or in a rally car just from the sort of dynamic you know yeah but it but it should still look like you know it, it, it's it's made by human hands if you like yeah you know not made you know on Venus or Mars or something because there is the big trend now for SUVs, <clears throat> although they are becoming uh, less socially acceptable, to now try and dial out the aggression in them. And you think, well, yeah, they are becoming softer-lined in many respects. Well, well, some are. I mean, the way the Jaguar have done that, you know, it, it's quite nice and successful, I think. Um, from a visual point of view, it's, now I get worried because more people are buying, you know, um, a BMW that's going to have your leg off, <laughs> you know, than, than they are a Jaguar. And to me, that's a disappointment. And I think that's either because I'm, I'm old and soft in the head, you know, or because marketing is overruling any, you know, any particular common sense that, that designers might have. Yeah. I mean, very quickly before we end, what what is in store for Peter Stevens? Without giving away any secrets, what are you working on at the moment? Um, well, interestingly, most of the things 
the time I'm working on are in some form or other electric. I mean, a, a project which I've been working on for a while, and unfortunately it's slowed down a lot now, um, is a, a large funicular railway project that will be in Hong Kong. Yeah. But I, I just recently, and I was able to get out when there was like two weeks in this whole pandemic business when I could go to Germany to the opening of the funicular railway in Baden-Baden, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's an electric thing, and it, it's nice because when the cars come back down, loaded in the afternoon, it actually makes electricity instead of using it. Yeah. You know? um, so it's, it's that sort of thing. I'm, I'm looking at um, an electric motorcycle and a couple of other electric projects, and I kind of, I like the fact that they are, you know, and what we're looking at is the way of storing the energy. And it, we don't yet have a word that isn't battery, but stores electrical energy, yeah. you know, but I call it energy storage. And that's going to be the trick for the future is energy storage. And I'm absolutely up for that. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the one thing. I mean, there isn't enough electricity. If everybody has an electric car, there isn't enough electricity to charge them all up. So it is the storage that is the the priority, but people don't seem to get that. And it's the, the, the 15 new nuclear power stations we would need to build when we argue enough. It takes 20 years to stop arguing before we build a new one. <laughs> um, and yet we're going to suddenly have to hurry up and have that many because... Yeah, the demand, unless we have other ways of, of storing it. Yeah. yeah. Peter Stevens, I'm sorry to say we've run out of time because we could have gone on about alternative power and everything else, but it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Well, and it's been terrifically good fun. I like a good natter with somebody who's enthusiastic. <laughs> right, once again, Peter Stevens. World-leading car designer. Thanks very much indeed for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. I said goodbye. Goodbye, call with me,